Yes, that's right, friends. <laughs> Hallelujah is not the end. Oh, no. The Messiah does not end after Chorus 44. That's, that's <laughs> even, even though it's Revelation, that's, it's not the end. Welcome back to another episode of Him Partial, the podcast where we talk all things church music. I'm Cara Devereaux. And I'm Monet Funga. And today we are finishing our short series on Handel's Messiah with special guests DJ Bulls and Dr. Aaron Rice. Today we find out the history behind Messiah and how Handel plagiarized his own work to create it. We will also talk about the controversy of the oratorio and where this piece really ends. But first, if you haven't already, head over to himpartial.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. This allows us to keep in touch with you even when the pesky algorithms of social media decide to up and change. Plus, the weekly newsletter contains all sorts of fun bonus content, including exclusive videos that our subscribers get to see first. In this week's bonus clip, our guests talk about how Messiah can help us to hide the word of God in our hearts. But only newsletter subscribers are going to get to see this for the next couple of weeks. If you are not subscribed, you don't get to see it yet. So if you want to see all the bonus content first, if you want to um, see all the extra stuff that we do with our guests, head over to himpartial.com and sign up today. So we are really excited to get uh, DJ and Aaron back on for the second part. Uh, Like we were saying last week, their enthusiasm for this piece is really infectious. Um, but before we jump in, I just wanted to say why we chose Messiah um, in our countdown to Easter. Um, we do kind of discuss this a little bit in the episode, maybe even in the bonus content as well. But I do think that this hymn or this piece uh, speaks so clearly of who Christ is. Um, and it does it in an unusual way. I won't spoil the episode for you. And I think um, that's really important when you think about uh, the first Easter um, and how the scriptures that the Jewish people at that time had to reference would have been a lot of the stuff that we sing in this piece. So I hope you're encouraged by the discussion because I think it really does point towards like the beauty of God's word and how it's really highlighted in this in this piece. Yes, I loved um, they actually give us an overview in this episode of the three movements that make up the Messiah and kind of the overarching structure of what's going on in the piece. I find that very helpful. And they also, I'm not going to spoil it, but like Monet hinted at, there were some things about the lyrics that surprised me. Things mm-hmm. that I thought were in there, but weren't. Mm-hmm. But you'll just have to wait and see. So without further ado, here is the interview. Last week, we had DJ and Aaron on the show to give us kind of the background on Handel and a little bit of a sneak peek into Messiah. Um, but this week, we're going to go in full force. We're going to dig into this this piece and get to understand a little bit more. And we think that you guys listening will be really encouraged by it. Uh, so DJ and Aaron, thank you so much for joining us again. Welcome to the show. Hey, y'all. Good to see you. Right. <laughs> hey, y'all. 
Yeah, you're a particular glutton for punishment, DJ. I think this is your third appearance. <laughs> hey, that's all right. We I'm, love I'm, having you. It's great. Yeah. Happy to do it. I'm even wearing the same clothes that I wore last time. <laughs> we like the consistency. That's right. <laughs> so... Um, we're digging into the Messiah this week. I'm so excited because I learned so much from you in the last episode and I'm just buzzing. Um, so what is the story behind Messiah's creation? And, you know, we talked a bit about the fact it was iconic last week. So how did it become that way? Well, you can't talk about the work without talking. It wasn't just a handle thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a, uh, a wealthy aristocrat. And, uh, and patron uh, named Charles Jennings, who wrote the libre- libretto, uh, p- the putting together of the sacred texts that form uh, the, the framework, the lyrical framework for the composition that guide the narrative that, that, that tell the story. Um, so Charles Jennings authored, developed these texts together. He had written the text for his oratorio, Saul. He had also uh, helped contribute to Israel and Egypt, which may be, you know, number two, number three, number three and number four on the list of popular um, Handel oratorios, much, much lesser than Messiah. Uh, but Jennings was his partner um, in, on the textual side. You, you, you may hear and I'll say this and then throw it to Aaron to, to take the next half. But sometimes you'll hear, you know, well, Handel locked himself in his room for 22 days and he saw a vision of heaven and was heard voices. Yeah, I, I, no? I, I don't know about that. But I know that that's three hours worth of notes that he wrote in 22 days and he wrote nothing else the year he wrote Messiah. Oh, wow. This was I'm it. I'm surprised. Yeah. I this mean, was it's it. So that, that's, that's part of the story. I think not only um, did, do we think about him doing it in 22 or 22, 24 days. Yep. It's not like he was composing every moment of every day, you know, and it's not like that was all consuming everything. I mean, this guy was a machine mm. writing music. But the thing is, that's not uncommon. It's not right. uncommon for the composers of this period to just churn out material wow. often. And one of the things that we have to remember is it's not unusual for a composer, Bach, Handel, really anybody during this period to borrow from other things that they had already composed. Mm. And so several of the arias, he just took verbatim copy paste <laughs> from other things that he composed, changed the lyrics to fit the Jennings libretto and goes plug and chug. And, you know, it's not unusual. It's not, um, uh, it, it's certainly not anything that was copyrighted or anything like that. And so you get some of those older elements that we know worked well in their initial use and then continued to work well um, in Messiah. And so we see that uh, that Handel did use those other elements to make it a little more speedy, a little more rapid. But um, prior to this, Handel doesn't have a host of, of choral things that he wrote. Um, we talked about sacred choral. 
Yes, exactly. And, and certainly not that much sacred choral music. Mm-hmm. Um, we did talk about several things, some of the Chandos anthems, some of the coronation anthems. But in reality, there wasn't a big corpus prior to Messiah. And um, I find it interesting that he, as, as DJ said last episode, he read the winds very well mm-hmm. with what people were longing to experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and in reality, you'll see him moving from that Italian opera style that was really heavily um, popular with people to moving towards an oratorio and still working on opera, but it became a thing for everybody, mm-hmm. right? That's why opera became so popular in this time period is it became not a thing just for a wealthy aristocrat to enjoy, but it's, I mean, when we think about opera in a lot of ways, it's love triangles and yeah. uh, backstabbing yeah. friends, and it, it's all the great juicy things you see on daytime TV, yeah. you know, <laughs> those, those, those uh, melodramas that you see in the middle of the day. That's what a lot of opera is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of opera during this period is looking back at um, mythological people mm-hmm. and uh, the, 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 um, the things that we see from the ancient world. And mm-hmm. so, One of the things that uh, is also interesting whenever we think about Messiah is it's not just these mythological creatures, but it's taking biblical passages with people that are real with events that actually happened as opposed to a mythological event. Mm -hmm. Like uh, he did write several other oratorios that were secular. And so one of those is Hercules. Hercules is not a real person, right? And so they're thinking, who are these real people that we can uh, connect with? And he had just written Saul. And so that's another example of that sort of thing. Israel and Egypt seeing the flight of the uh, Israelites and their... the uh, challenges that went along with that, in, in addition to the plagues and that sort of thing. And so Handel's writing these things to connect with real people in the way that they we might watching a dramatic thing on television or mm-hmm. reading a dramatic uh, uh, um, uh, piece of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so, the word. Uh, that's the word. Handel dramatic. was a dramatic composer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Period. It, it, there's just no way around it. He he was a religious guy, um, but what counts more in Messiah is the fact that Handel knew how to musically convey a wide range of emotion, real human emotion, connecting to real human people. Um, and he just further and further refined that over the course of writing 40-something operas in 8, 10, 12 I don't even know the exact number of oratorio, but dramatic is the word. Yeah. I have a a slightly tangential question, if you could answer it quickly, or we could put a pin in it and you can answer it later. But, you know, you're saying about operas being for everyday people. So how how did it go from that to what we know today, where it's all like black tie and fancy? If there is a quick answer to that, I'm just curious. (laughs) DJ, you want to start with a little bit on that? The first thing that came to my mind is the exclusivity of those with whom it's performed um, becomes a financial venture in large urban cities to where, you know, they can't afford to put it on if unless they're going to bring in the very best people. And, and so, it, it, again, and, and I'm 
and the Metropolitan Opera has been around a long, long time in New York or, or Covent Garden, you yeah. know, uh, all these these great operatic stages. Um, but it, it's such a specialized art form. Mm. I, I mean, I, I get the rigors and, you know, nervous thinking about my recital as an undergraduate in school because I had to sing an hour's worth of music from memory. Mm. Well, I'm trying to think about what it's like to be Jay Hunter Morris and get called two days before they're supposed to open with the ring cycle at the Met. And you're supposed to sing all four operas back to back to back to back <laughs> from memory. Yeah. Mm. You're going to have to show me the money. <laughs> so yeah, it, you are going to go be in black tie for something like that. Yeah. I think a lot of that also has to do with the just the uh, divergence in high culture and low culture, especially as just as time has gone on. And with informality versus formality, um, one of the things that I think about often is our director of opera theater will tell our students, hey, listen, opera is still for the every man. It deals with the nitty gritty gross stuff. The things that, you know, again, backstabs, you know, girlfriends cheating on you. We're going to kill, you know, it, it really is. And especially in the 19th century, yep. you have uh, more and more of those very base experiences being brought out in opera. And I think that um, that a lot of that changed in the 20th century, especially with the development of technology and media ecology. And so whenever you become uh, uh, more and more able to take something and consume it and not think about it, um, then whenever you go to the opera and you actually have to think and hear and listen and engage with the complexity, there is a, a, a divergence in that willingness to experience and think through things. And so I think high culture ended up sticking with the things that we can think about, quote unquote, or we have the capability to think about with our tuxedo on um, and, and then going and watching, I don't know, whatever. Tristan Untisolda or something, you know. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, yeah. And by As the way, it's not in your language. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You said uh, something that made me actually go back pre-handle. You know, the music of the people starts with the troubadours and the troops and trouvères and the madrigalists right. singing right. about April being in their mistress's face in the public square. Mm. Um, and and th those were designed as the people's songs. They weren't, mm -hmm. first of all, music had all been sacred. And what, what do you mean we're, we're, we're singing something secular here? And then, mm -hmm. then you have the whole question of the sacred, the secular music coming back into the sacred and that whole thing. But music's in the, music in the public square changed dramatically from 1650 to 1850. Mm -hmm. It became music for the every man in the public square to music for the concert hall right. and for the stage, you know, the but, but those secular things are themes are still the same. It's yeah, like, I mean, right. honestly, the Rolling Stones, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's really what it is. Yeah. And that's what opera became. And then to pivot back to handle what we ended up having is 
these kind of experiences for the everyday man brought into the oratorio. So it wasn't in the church, right? We've talked about this briefly. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an actual part of the liturgical season, wasn't what they were actually doing in the worship service, but it was these after moments, the afterglow of worship, whenever uh, these groups would gather in the hall of prayer and they would have prayer, they would have further scripture reading, they would sing things in their own language. Mm -hmm. And so this is what's happening in the 17th century with the development of the oratorio. And so you see it coming to the every man again in their own language, and they're able to experience this thing that eventually got more and more readings and singing with dramatic elements and we see the culmination of that being messiah and and everything is everything is cyclical right right so just think about the fact that 250 years earlier is when martin luther wanted to bring church music back to the people in the pew Mm. yeah in, in so many ways i think this is one of those cultural arrows that over time, you know, Phyllis Tickle writes about it in The Great Emergence, these these big things that happen in history that 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 come back. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you could argue that we're experiencing that a little bit of that now with the desire to bring church music back into what is normal for the people in the pew to sing, not this complex, um, difficult to hear and follow things, but that things that are easily singable by the, 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 the least common denominator, if you'll allow me to use that word and not be <laughs> using the rock story. <laughs> well, you, you guys, you guys have kind of touched on this. And I think since we're here, if you could just elaborate a little bit more on the oratorio and, and maybe what I, what I think was its evangelistic it- intentions, um, Cara, if you don't mind me just switching it up, because I, I do think we're hearing the, I mean, I had some music education and I'm like, Aura, what? You know, so I feel like for our listeners, if you could just kind of break it down, like, was this controversial in its day and and what really was its intentions? Well, I, you know, a lot of times you'll have some of the folklore, as it were, come down and say that the oratorio was primarily used during Lent because the opera people, they couldn't go to the opera during Lent. And so, yeah, that happened, but it wasn't necessarily the real origin uh, origin of things. The real origin is like we talked about a moment ago is that they're experiencing uh, um hearty worship in, in, in their um, uh, their actual worship service, and they're wanting the, the movement of the heart says, let's continue this on in, in the place that we would consider in, a, in the States, the, the fellowship hall, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the building that's attached to the main sanctuary. And that's where, you know, maybe on Wednesday nights, you have Wednesday night meals, and you, you have these prayer services and that sort of thing in this other space. Mm-hmm. And so it begins in this oratory hall that's attached to the church. And so in those moments after the service, they would be reading scripture. They would continue prayer in their own language in a more intimate way. Well, eventually, like everything, if a good thing starts, people invest in it, invest time in it, think through it. How can we continue to see it grow? And so you have more and more dramatic readings involved. You have more and more soloistic singing involved, mm-hmm. and it evolves into what Handel grasps and, and takes hold of when you get to the very beginning of the 18th century, and you see it actually just explode with um, drama and intrigue and how can we take 
the great things from opera and slap it with a scriptural uh, context and go from there to engage people with um, these things. Now, was it necessarily Billy Graham or Whitfield? No, um, but it, it did have um, strong intentions of bringing the drama of the scripture to life. Okay. The, the, the outcome of it uh, was considered more than the purpose of the composition before it. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, the, the, what came as a result of performing the oratorio ends up with the affect as opposed to we're going to write this oratorio and thousands are going to come into the church. Mm. Okay. If that, if that makes sense. The the, the other thing in, in, in Aaron talking about the interplay of, of spoken word and readings, Handel was a pioneer in something musically called recitative. And, and, and the way he, he depicts, you know, an angel, for example, singing, behold, a virgin shall conceive and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Glory to God in the highest. The chorus, the chorus comes in. It, it's that, that dramatic depiction of what happens in the scriptural text makes it alive for everybody. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't know going in what they're going to experience, yeah. the drama engages them on their level and invites them into the biblical narrative. Um, and, and that it's, it's the sacred way of doing what Handel did on the stage with Julius Caesar or, or mm-hmm. Idomeneo or Rodolinda or anything else. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll piggybacking on that. One of the things that makes it so vibrant is Handel's use of what would be text painting, right? Mm-hmm. And we see this all the way back again with what DJ was saying with the madrigals. They're trying to use the special effects of their day to engage the audience. So if you look even back at Israel and Egypt, the great thing that really is engaging about that piece is the way that he brings out the plagues, right? So whenever they're singing about hailstones coming out, boom, 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 boom. It's like you've got these hailstones falling to the ground and smashing people on the head, yeah. right? And so whenever you're thinking about the flies, the, the plague of the flies, with, with the, the feverish string set, Mm-hmm. The same thing happens in Messiah. Whenever mm-hmm. you've got, you hear the angel wings, whenever you're getting ready to hear the Holy <laughs> Ghost. <right? laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so exactly you right. hear it and, and it's like the best special effects that we see in the movies today. This is their version mm-hmm. of special effect that draws in the listener and the viewer and just absolutely magnetizes them to what's going on. I mean, can you imagine being in the room the first time and, and handle, he must have had someone that he loved to write for the way he wrote some of these things. The, the first time the bass sang, thus saith the Lord, the oh. Lord of hosts, <laughs> it wants a little while and I will, <laughs> you know, uh, Aaron, I could, Aaron, I could probably give you a full episode on that song alone, <laughs> but we'll go there. Um, <laughs> But but the sheer power that the melding of the, the drama with with the musical effect it, it you can't understate it. It's 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 a part of the fabric for what makes Messiah great. Yeah. Absolutely. So 
we've been talking about the Messiah, but um, for those who maybe aren't as familiar, could you guys just briefly walk us through the different movements and explain what's going on? DJ, you want to take one and three and I'll talk about two? Sure. So three, three scenes, part the first, part the second, part the third. Um, first part, as, as any opera would, begins with an overture that sets the musical tone um, for what's going to, to come, even though you don't really know what's coming until after you've, you've, you've seen it all progress. But part one, fulfillment of prophecies of the coming of the Lord, um, the Lord's uh, epiphany um, and his ministry uh, as the good shepherd um, would be a, a prevalent image um, for, for the first part. It, it begins with, with comfort ye and it, and it ends with his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Mm. So second is uh, really looking at the passion sequence and it's not necessarily looking at, at it from the gospel perspective. It's looking at it in um, what does Christ fulfill and do through the passion? And um, so it starts out with several really well-known. If you're, if you're thinking about um, uh, scripture passages, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is, you know, what part of the, the actual liturgy, the mass liturgy. And yet Handel brings it over here, which I find is very interesting because we always say, oh, this is extra liturgical. Well, yeah, it is, but we still include some of that text in here, you know? Mm. Um, so it starts off with that and then just, um, uh, really it evolves into several elements. There's a triptych in here, the choral triptych at the very beginning. There are three choral movements, boom, 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 back to back to back that really are very interesting. Surely he hath borne our griefs, which is very weighty and very still majestic. Surely it's very um, a French overture style. Mm. It's uh, quite like you see Christ coming down the Via Dolorosa bearing the cross. And yet he's the king, but he's bearing the cross on our mm -hmm. behalf. Now it continues on. Uh, and with his stripes, we were healed, which is. Um, Mozart straight rips that off. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he totally does. Um, and then we have a big kind of uh, contrapuntal thing with that. And what's interesting is the third one in this triptych is all we like sheep have gone astray. It's almost cheesy. It's so frolicky and childlike and, and what Handel's doing here is he goes from these two super heavy things, heavy, uh, heavy um, uh, thought process to this. Oh, we like she. Oh, we like she. <laughs> and you get this kind of bouncy effect where you almost see the sheep frolicking innocently through the pasture. Mm. And then at the end. And on him, the iniquity of us all, right? And so we see the weight come crashing down mm. at the very end of this triptych. And so we were set up during this triptych to kind of um, see the weight of the passion. And then we move on through there. Um, and the things to me that really... Um, the libretto never comes out and said, this is when Jesus dies. But some of the ones that we kind of 
feel that movement or towards the end uh, or this middle section. He was cut off out of the land of the living, but you did not leave his soul in hell, right? He He's finding the way to express the death of Christ without saying, it is finished. Yeah. We never get the it is finished moment like mm-hmm. we do in many of the passions and, and all of Bach's writing. You get it directly from the, the uh, from the gospel, but you never have that here. And then we finish out after the death. Um, we get to the quasi resurrection because we don't see the actual resurrection with hallelujah. And it springboards into the third part, which DJ will talk about. Yes, that's right, friends. <laughs> Hallelujah is not the end. Oh, no. The Messiah does not end after Chorus 44. That's, that's <laughs> even, even though it's revelation, that's, it's not the end. And so the third part, um, hope, hope for life after death, judgment, victory over mm-hmm. death, mm-hmm. Um, the, the victorious lamb, uh, the third part begins with um, an odd text to use because it's so contextual, but it's a, a text from Job. Um, I know that my Redeemer liveth, this mm. stunning, stunning soprano aria mm-hmm. um, that I mean, gives me chills thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> um, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he shall stand upon the earth. Uh, from there, he goes to uh, since by man uh, came death, by man came also the resurrection. For as an Adam all die, even in Christ all shall be made alive. First Corinthians 15, he kind of camps in First Corinthians 15 a little bit. Uh, Behold, I tell you a great mystery. We get we get the base triumphant. It, it's so interesting. The, the base's first entrance is a descending D minor motif. But when the bass ends, it's a D major ascension. You know, it's just, it's just, Handel knew what he was doing and it's yeah. brilliantly done. Yeah. Uh, Behold, I tell you a great mystery. We shall not all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And then the trumpet sounds and the bass sounds like the trumpet and the trumpet sounds like the trumpet. Mm-hmm. Triumphal. First um, Corinthians 15, uh, 52, 3, 4. Uh, then it ends. Uh, then, then shall all be brought to pass, followed by the alto tenor duet, Death, Where is Thy Sting? That piece doesn't get performed enough. Yeah. It's so cool. It's yeah, gorgeous. It's cool. And it's, uh, again, it's more 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We got another soprano solo, If God Be For Us, Who Can Be Against Us, Return. Uh, actually, that's the only Pauline or the only Romans reference, rather, the Romans 8. Mm. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? But and this is why people, I think. Have this perspective that the hallelujah is the end uh, because it's from Revelation. Well, the real end comes with the worthy is the lamb. Exactly. Uh, Revelation 5, the worship scene there. Yeah. Uh, big, majestic, worthy is the Lamb. And then you get the... Um, da, 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 yeah, 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 this dance. Um, and it's, it's, it's awful, but Robert Shaw described it one time as you have the weight of Bach 
with worthy is the lamb. And then all these little cherubim get on their motor scooters and bless the <laughs> all around. Uh, but but it, it is a weighty but victorious ending. Yeah. And it and it is. You walk away thinking, wow, I've just experienced all of the biblical narrative. Yeah, but but you sort of got fooled. Yeah. Uh, into it a little bit because there's no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts. Hmm. Um, but you've got Job, you know, I mean, hmm. it's just, they're, they're, they're things that make you scratch your head. <laughs> um, opportunities left on the table. Who knows? Um, it's incredible, Sorry. It's incredible no. though that he can convey all of that without kind of mm-hmm. explicitly talking about things like the resurrection. It's a lot of skill and a lot of talent yeah. to be able to do that. And to me, I mean, one of the things that I love is the fact that you never actually see Christ on the cross, but you get these movements that um, just really pierce. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was despised and rejected. You get all of these moments from the Old Testament mm-hmm. that describe it almost intentionally. And then you get um, where he... Uh, thy rebuke hath broken his heart. That's the moment where Christ dies in my mind. Mm. Whenever I conduct yeah. or listen, thy rebuke hath broken his heart. And it just, it's done. It's mm. finished without using the words. Mm. And you can't, you can't sing thy rebuke without he trusted in God exactly. that he would deliver him. And in and, and, and all of this, the work is called Messiah. Guess what word is never there? <laughs> oh yeah, not just Messiah, but Jesus. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the name is not in in the piece. But it's beautiful, though. I, I remember once um, when Cara and I were part of the same church. Our pastor did a series in the evenings on Sundays, where he showed um, how passages in the Old Testament were actually pointing towards. Jesus, he he went through mm-hmm. the entire Old Testament. He and was on it for about two years, one thing was, after another, uh, every single Sunday. It was yeah. really good. But it was it was so good because I think that how can I say this without sounding crazy? I think sometimes Christians can be too focused on the Gospels and not see how Christ is throughout Scripture, like. The whole book is about him. It's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's not just the Gospels according to, but we see him throughout all of scripture. So it is really like beautiful to see, I guess, Handel and Jennings together working to show Messiah in all these passages that you wouldn't necessarily immediately go to if you wanted to tell someone his story. So I don't know. Maybe that's maybe it's an opportunity. I don't think you're crazy. Number one. Oh, it's all nice. But one of my one of my favorite passages in scripture is is the first four verses of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. Long ago our forefathers spoke to the prophets in many and various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son, through whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the worlds. Mm -hmm. And he was there in the beginning. Well, oh, what's the what's the terrible old gospel song? He was there all the time. Uh, <laughs> sorry, 
you, you got to keep the leash on me because I'm liable to <laughs> trails that end up with uh, hate, hatred and vitriol coming in email to me, you know. No, I, I think you guys just really walked us through. It's so it's so obvious how close you guys are to this piece and, and how much time you spent with it over the years. And I think that's really beneficial for us. Like I said, I mean, my exposure to this piece is limited um, last few years, really. And, you know, I became a Christian in my adult life. So I think I really, really appreciate a piece like this. Um, not having grown up in the church, not really having like a lot of exposure to hymns until I was an adult. And then having this background in, in, in choral music and never having sung it before. It just feels like such, it's such an encouragement to me to hear you guys talk about it. And I think um, even folks who don't have my exact background will find a lot of encouragement from it too, because it is one, the gifting that God has given this man in history, these men, if you add Charles in there as well. And it is the time period in which he placed them. And it is the audience in, in which they were, you know, writing and composing for and his word at the core of it. Um, yeah. It's be it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And, and I think you guys have, have confirmed that. Any any appreciator of music, wherever they find themselves on on the spectrum of being a Christ follower, wherever they find themselves, you, you would do yourself well because there are thousands of different versions of Messiah out there mm. um, to go and listen to one yeah. um, from beginning to end. To get the full effect of the story, and and every one of them is different. Aaron and I have talked about this about any number of pieces, but you can go from a piece that that is as pure in Baroque style um, with uh, a, a conductor like a John Elliot Gardner, or you can go and listen to Sir Thomas Beecham's recording of Mozart's orchestration of Messiah. That's right. Mozart did an orchestration of Messiah with trumpets and trombones and wow. cymbal crashes on the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> Just Google it. Google Beecham hallelujah or Mozart handle hallelujah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you might find yourself thinking, is this a fight song at a football game? Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, there's such a wide berth of of diversity in how the work's been approached that you'll never have the same experience twice in listening to it. Mm. And I think Aaron would agree that whenever he and I find ourselves coming back to conduct Messiah again, it won't be the same as it was last time. Mm. Um, because every, everything is is just... It, it changes as you evolve and live with it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, is there, is there anything else that you guys are like, our listeners really, really, really have to know this about the Messiah? I can't wait to the bonus question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we were so looped in with the last bonus question, ready for it. So Okay, well, in that oh. case, 
Um, we'll have you guys stick around for the bonus question, which our newsletter subscribers will get to hear first, but will be available soon for everybody else. We've absolutely loved talking to you guys about Handel and about the Messiah, and I have learned so much about music and music history and about all of this, and I cannot wait to go and maybe listen to Mozart. I'm not sure <laughs> how I'm going to feel about his version. <laughs> but yeah, for sure, try it out. We'll have links in the descriptions and... Um, just remind us where can we find you guys online? I'm on Insta, Aaron Rice Ten. On the Insta as well, Man with Baton. <laughs> Yeah, TJ also does um, some really good arrangements of hymns on fearless4 with a number 4u.com. So if you're looking for good arrangements for hymns, that's a good place to go. So thank you so much, guys, uh, for sharing your expertise and all your wisdom and your knowledge with us. And um, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks.